Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michion Diagnostics. In this series, we will discuss thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Michion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Brad, take it away. This is Brad Lewis. We're here today to talk about equivocal mutations on the panels that you've ordered to evaluate someone with atypical HUS. For today's uh, podcast, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Jamie Kane, a PhD from, from Meijian, who will discuss how we think about equivocal mutations. Before we even get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about what kinds of calls it is that I get to discuss an equivocal mutation. So let's take a step back, if we can, and ask the question first, why did you order this test in the first place? And there really are several reasons why you might choose to order this test. You might be performing a renal transplant, in which case you clearly need to get um, mutational analysis done. Particularly if there's any chance of using a family donor, which you may want to, where you may want to avoid mutations in the family donors. It also has some impact on prognosis for the patients, and occasionally and, and arguably may have an impact on whether you should be treating someone around the time of the, of the transplant. But clearly transplant patients need to be, to be tested. In non-transplant patients, uh, we often order mutational testing as a way of determining the likely prognosis and, in particular, the possibility of stopping therapy in some patients. That's still a, a bit of a moot point, but again, something where the mutational analysis certainly contributes to our understanding of a patient's uh, likely prognosis and, uh, and ability to tolerate discontinuation of eculizumab. Um, Family counseling is, is occasionally a reason. A patient has a HUS. They want their family members tested so they can know what their risk is. I don't recommend doing that. I don't because the penetrance, the likelihood of a given mutation presenting in a patient is fairly low in this disease, and we just don't know what to do with the information that we get. That's different if, you're, if the family member is possibly going to be a donor, but otherwise I don't yet know what to do, and I generally tell patients no matter what I find, if you have a family member who had this disease and you're presenting with a syndrome that could be this, or you are in a situation where your risk of developing this is high, you ought to be watched closely and managed as though you might be getting a typical HUS. My clinic, my a priori uh, probability of your having HUS is much higher than it would be for other patients based on your association with the patient, not necessarily based on the genetics. That may change in the future, but as of today, I don't recommend um, family genetic testing. And then probably the most common reason I see the testing being done is because the doctor who ordered the testing is confused. And they're either confused because it's a genuinely confusing case uh, very often, patient doctors are confused because they've never seen a case of AHUS before. Most patients with AHUS are treated by someone who's not seen a case before. It's a very rare disease, and they just want a little bit of confirmation. I certainly encourage getting confirmation, feeling more confident about the testing, but it comes back to the a key point here, which is that ultimately... Now, confused or not, the diagnosis of HUS is a clinical diagnosis. If someone presents with a TMA and you don't have any other etiology for that TMA, and it's that don't have any other that's so confusing, but if you don't have any other etiology for the TMA, then this is a typical HUS. Um, that was the criteria that was used in the trials when the eculizumab was found to work well. It's what's used in other trials. You don't need genetic testing to diagnose atypical HUS. It's a clinical diagnosis. Having said that, occasionally we, you can't honestly convince yourself that you don't have some other diagnosis. 
Could this patient have an occult malignancy? Gastric cancer, for example, can often be surprisingly occult, even at a time when it's generated a a TMA. Um, Could there be some other etiology? Um, In those cases, the genetic testing, if it's clearly positive, is useful and pushes you to make the diagnosis. But remember that if the testing is negative, that doesn't in any way tell you that you don't have AHUS because the testing is so often negative in patients whose family history and presentation is clearly AHUS and who respond well to treatment with ecuvizumab, the currently available treatment for this disorder. So again, before we start talking about genetic testing, remember this was a clinical diagnosis. Genetic testing contributes what it can when it can. Occasionally, the genetic testing will be clearly positive, a mutation well-known to cause this disease in a number of different ways. Occasionally, it will be clearly negative. There's just nothing we're able to find that isn't uh, wild-type, that isn't what we see in everybody else. And then, occasionally, and what we're here to talk about today, you'll get back a report that says this patient has a variant of unknown significance, or if you're getting the report from us, it's more likely to say that you're getting an equivocal um, report. And now, Jamie, if I can get you to talk about what do we mean when we say that somebody has an equivocal report? So I'm Jamie Kane. Uh, I have a PhD in molecular biology, and I uh, am the director of genetic innovation here at Meishan. So right, positive and negative are pretty straightforward. Negative results are going to be cases where there's no rare variants detected in the genes that we're sequencing for the AHUS panel. Positive is we see a, a mutation or a variant that has a very clear association in the literature with AHUS. So unfortunately, there's many cases where they fall in between in this equivocal zone. And uh, so these are generally, it's going to be a rare variant. Uh, and I guess we should stop and maybe talk about what that means. So, um, you know, this is going to be based on the, frequent, the allele frequency, we call it, in the population. And so rare is going to mean different things depending on what disease you're talking about. Um, but AHUS is, is a very rare disease. So we like to think of it, as, you know, it needs to be less than 0.01. So if, if I can just break in for a second. So why do you care about the frequency of this mutation? It's because this disease is so rare. So if a, if a variant has a frequency, let's say a 5% or a 0.05, so meaning that you know, 5% of the people have this variant. But we know that this disease is much, much, much rarer than that. And and therefore, there's no way that variant could be causing AHUS. There's a chance it, you know, is a risk factor and, you know, maybe predis- predisposes slightly, but it's just way too common for you to ever, for it to ever shift a clinical decision one way or the other. So we can basically ignore those and just focus on the rare variants. So if a mutation is is common, that makes it unlikely that it's going to be a causative mutation. But it's the fact that it's a rare mutation, does that tell you that this mutation is going to be is going to be disease causing? Uh, great question. Um, so no. So rare variants, you need a rare variant in order for it to be considered to contribute to AHUS. But having rare variants certainly does not mean it definitely contributes. And that's probably confusing. Let me back up. So if we sequence normal people, healthy people, which we do to validate the panel, we will see lots of rare variants. So um, many people will have rare variants in these, uh, this, these 12 genes that we, we sequence. And, but we know those people are healthy, so those rare variants aren't doing anything. Um, and so we know if we sequence a bunch of 
patients with AHUS, they're also going to have a bunch of rare variants. And many of those rare variants are just incidental. They're just there because they're passed along generation to generation, but they don't have any negative effect. Uh, so rare, having a rare variant is, uh, I guess, necessary, but not sufficient to um, trigger a positive or suspiciously equivocal uh, rating from us. What about novel variants? If, I have a, if my patient has a, has a novel mutation, um, should that tell me that this patient is likely to have HUS? The mutation is in a disease-causing gene? Yeah, so novel is much more interesting. Uh, so novel meaning it's never been reported in the public databases, so we just can't find any mention of it. So it has no allele frequency because you can't calculate one. Um, so we used to see more novel. So we've been running this test for maybe four years, and we used to see more novels uh, in those first two years than we do now. And that's because the, the public databases are just much better now. They've gone from having just, you know, 2,000 um, you know, sample size of 2,000 uh, people to, you know, 70,000 now. So there's just much more uh, data on the variants that are in the world. You know, a couple years ago, if you got a novel, you didn't really know, is this, you know, really novel or is it just less than one in 2,000? You know, when we see novels, those are very suspicious. And so when we sequence our, you know, you know if we sequence 30 normal people, we probably won't see any novels. Um, and I believe it's thought that people get 50 to 100 novel variants in their entire genome uh, in the germline being passed from one generation to the other. So the chances of seeing it in these 12 genes are low. Um, you know, I think we'd have to sequence hundreds of people to see one by chance. Um, now, of course, there are some variants that will look novel but aren't truly novel because, you know, again, we, the databases only have about 70,000 to 100,000 uh, uh, subjects in them now. So, you know, obviously if a variant is 1 in 100,000 frequency in the real population, that's probably going to be missed by databases. And so I, I suspect two or three years from now, it'll be even that much better to know whether something's really novel or not. So yes, if we see something today that is novel, uh, that you know that is a much more suspicious equivocal. Uh, I you know I would I would definitely lean that way. So just just for clarity, to go back, what are the things you look at to say that a mutation is positive? What are the things that an equivocal is striving to have, if you will? You'd look at family history. If this is a mutation that is known to have recurred in multiple family members in some family and each of those family members developed disease, we would then believe that we had a positive mutation. If there's been in vitro studies, if someone has shown in the test tube that this particular mutation is shown with a, a functional change in, in the complement cascade itself or in some particular component of the cascade or its ability to interact with other components of the cascade, that in vitro testing would, would likely sway us to call it positive. Other things that would really make us think this is a positive uh, mutation, that the absence of this that would make us want to call this an equivocal mutation? Right. So, uh, yeah. So the best thing is we, we can find lots of papers that show that there are other previous AHUS patients that had this variant too. So that's very suspicious. And it would be incredibly uh, helpful if there's then in vitro validation of that. But that's unfortunately kind of rare. Um, so most of the time when we get these equivocals, they're more, they're more gray. It's, uh, you know, we know they're rare. Uh, maybe they have been seen in the patient, but there's no molecular validation uh, and maybe no pedigree. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's just different 
weights of evidence you can give all those things. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we actually don't sequence that many pedigrees here. Uh, we usually don't have access to family data when we do these, um, but that is very powerful if you have it. And obviously, we can't do molecular validation on our own just because that's very labor and time intensive. Uh, so we do the best we can just by looking at the literature and the existing AHUS public databases, as well as what we've seen internally. You can look at things, uh, so I guess a lot of people know about these bioinformatics scores. Two, pop, two of the most popular programs are um, SIFT and Polyfen. So these will look at how conserved is the amino acid that is affected uh, in this protein um, over evolutionary timescales. And the thought being, the more conserved an amino acid is, the more important it is, and therefore, if it is altered, the more likely that is to be pathogenic. Um, these programs do work, but uh, they have high false positive rates and high false negative rates. I don't find them useful on a per variant basis, on a per patient basis. Like there's never, I don't think it's, it's ever going to be enough evidence that you would ever call your equivocal negative or your equivocal positive based on the bioinformatics scores one way or the other. Um, they're, they're really more of a research tool. If you're looking at many variants, if you have hundreds of variants, you just want to sort them in some way and get an overall impression. You can use them there very powerfully but I don't think they're too useful clinically. So then in general, how do you approach someone who has a mutation that doesn't meet the criteria to be positive? It's not a negative mutation. You have something that's there. How do you decide if that particular mutation is something that's likely to, has some chance of being uh, of concern? And how do you think about those equivocal mutations? Yeah, so... Uh... Right, we stratify equivocals into, I guess, three buckets. There's kind of the, you know, kind of not that suspicious equivocals. There's the suspicious equivocals, and then like the really we don't know. Um, so the suspicious ones would have some association, um, or maybe there's mixed. Sometimes it's mixed reporting. Like a, a lot of times, you might see several reports where one of them might call it probably benign, but the others lean towards pathogenic. And so when there's conflicting data like that, we generally err on the side of caution and call it equivocal. But a lot of times if you look at the papers, you, you figure out which side the, that you personally fall on. And so a lot of those end up being more of like a suspicious equivocal. Um, you know, if it's novel to me, that actually does make it suspicious uh, just because the chances of seeing novels are very low. And we do see novels a lot when we sequence these patients. So that a novel missense mutation, I think, is sufficient to be very suspicious. Something that's not suspicious would be if it's an intronic mutation. So, um, you know, we focus on the exons, where the most, most of the knowledge is and most of the action is. Uh, you can certainly get pathogen, you know, truly pathogenic mutations that are anywhere in the intron, but those are rare and hard to find. And intronic, it, you know, the introns are much larger than the exons in general. And so it ends up being a much more laborious process if you want to include all the introns. And since so little is known about them, we only focus on the little bits of, you know, five to 20 base pairs of intronic DNA that's right um, flanking the exons. And so if you, you know, if you catch the first couple base pairs of the introns, like those can definitely have, you know, very real effects on splicing that are easy to, to uh, predict. And so that can be, that would actually get you into a positive, um, depending on where it is exactly. But then, you know, most of that intronic data, intronic region, even when close to the exon, is still pretty unknown. So if I have a, 
if I have a rare variant that's five base pairs away from the exon, that's, um, that's, you know, there's not going to be, it's very unlikely that anything useful has been reported about that. Um, you know, there's not going to be any molecular validation of that. So that's going to be a, uh, to me, um, not that suspicious. It's equivocal. It's probably benign, but it certainly could be pathogenic. But I think most of the time it probably won't be. Uh, and again, the introns are less conserved. So actually they can just pick up more variants. Another type would be these silent variants. So you can get a variant in the exon, but it doesn't change the amino acid. And a lot of those are going to be uh, neutral because they don't change the protein. They certainly can be pathogenic because they can affect splicing, even though they're in the exon, or they can just affect RNA stability or translation efficiency. So factors like that. But there's, there's going to be very little in the literature about it, almost certainly. And so we won't have much to say about it. And again, silent variants are a bit more tolerated, so they, you know, they can show up more often. So, so silent variants and intronic variants are generally on the more benign side of equivocal, even though they have the potential to be pathogenic. Uh, so something that's really been truly equivocal, I guess, would be a missense variant that's rare, but not novel, um, and just not much reported about it. So there, you, you know, it certainly, certainly could be pathogenic, but we know if we sequence a lot of healthy people, we will see rare missense variants as well. So the punchline sounds like it is that the equivocals really are equivocal. When we're yes. reporting it out as equivocal, we simply don't know. And that's what I say to, my, to, the, patient, to the physicians about their patients, is this was, to some large extent, a fairly unhelpful study, unfortunately, when you get back an equivocal result. Although, as you notice, as you mentioned, you can stratify the equivocal uh, mutations, the reports of equivocal mutations somewhat. And there are some that tend to push a little bit towards being positive and some that are really leaning towards being a, a truly unhelpful negative result. Um, and it goes back again to the fact that this is really a clinical diagnosis. And if you were leaning positive and you now have an equivocal that also leans positive, I would, uh, without any real basis in science, I would tend to take that as a further one last push for me to call it uh, positive. If it leans negative, it just doesn't help you any. You certainly can have a negative mutation and, and uh, have the HUS. It just isn't a, a, a helpful result. So you're going to have to wait and, and hope that somewhere down the road, and it certainly happens, that this, this mutation will be found to be either a clear positive or a clear negative. So, Jamie, one of the questions that, that comes up often when, when a physician receives a report like this is could we resequence it to get a more accurate result? In the same way that if I get back a CBC result and it says the hemoglobin is 10, and I really don't think that makes any sense, I just repeat the CBC, and very often it turns out to be a, a lab error. Is it worth just just simply resequencing the, this test? Right. Generally, no. Uh, so we sequence. We get the the sequence of of nucleotides that that comprise the genes. Um, so that's not going to change. That should be exactly the same every time you do it. So what might be useful is to reanalyze the existing data later down the road because the knowledge of what those variants mean can certainly change as the literature improves. And that's also an easy thing to do since we don't have to resequence. We just need to look at the, the variants again and just see if there's any new, new papers published. So is it worth having, having physicians call, check back in every year or two in, in cases where this 
this testing really does matter in some way to see if there's been a, a change in our knowledge base or in our understanding of the sequencing that their particular patient has? Yes, I would recommend that. Uh, just generally, the field of, of you know, genetic sequencing in the clinic is moving very rapidly. This is definitely in its infancy. Unfortunately, we often get variants of unknown significance. That's just going to get better and better and better as, as more and more uh, people get sequenced, sequenced, more papers come out. Um, so, and you know, this is especially true for AHUS. It's very rare disease. Um, it's actively being studied. Papers get published all the time on it. We're constant, constantly seeing new variants or uh, just seeing more of the same previous variants that we didn't really know much about. So definitely, I would, I think checking up every year or so would, you know, might really be beneficial. And just to add it as an aside, we're, we look at multiple genes, all of which seem to have some impact or may have some impact in AHUS. And we're learning more and more about the control of the complement cascade. So we are adding in new genes occasionally to the panel. The current panel has been fairly stable for a while, but we are actually at the moment beginning to add uh, in new genes. Right. That's a good point. So actually, we've been using the same um, genetic panel for the, the past four years, uh, this AHUS genetic panel. But we're actually right, right about to launch um, on... You know, next week we're launching a a new version that does have new genes in it. So actually, now it, you could now it might make sense to resequence um, because you know the old panel sequenced twelve genes. This new one's going to sequence twenty genes. So we just don't have that data on those missing eight genes for any uh, previous patients. Um, you know, the, the chances of finding something are going to be low because we're adding genes that are more on the margins, and actually they're more to pick up. I guess, alternative disease states. So not it's not to rule in HUS, but actually to maybe rule in a different cause of the TMA. So yeah, you might definitely consider running an equivocal or your old negatives with the new panel. It sounds like that might be particularly true if you have a patient who hasn't done well on therapy for, the, for their AHUS, looking for the possibility of a congenital defect in vitamin B12 handling, for example, or even other diseases that can present like HUS, but not really be HUS and not be a defect primarily in the complement cascade. And lastly, there are there is a rare mutation that uh, renders patients eculizumab refractory. It affects the binding site of the eculizumab itself. It doesn't change the disease, but it might change the way you want to think about therapy as things move forward in the future. Yes, right. So, While yeah. we're talking on these odd mutations, what about heterozygous versus homozygous mutations. How does that figure into your thinking? And then when you get done with that, tell me a bit about the CFHR family of of proteins. Sure. So for AHUS, mostly we see heterozygous mutations. That's just how this disease is. It would be a autosomal dominant disease that has very much so a partially penetrant disease. So you might have a very suspicious mutation, but lots of healthy people will probably have that too and never get triggered to present with the disease. Yeah, we almost never see homozygous variants, actually. Uh, there are a couple exceptions to that. So there is this one gene, DGKE, which is different than the other genes that we have in the panel. For this particular gene, this particular type of AHUS seems to be distinct. It's a more of a classically autosomal recessive. So there you're going to need either to have homozygous variants or compound heterozygous, meaning you know, a variant in this amino acid on one chromosome and then a variant in a different amino acid on the other chromosome. So effectively, they're, they're like being homozygous. Yeah, and then, so the CFH region. So CFH is definitely 
a gene that's uh, heavily implicated in AHUS. Uh, there, you know, it's, it has the most number of published mutations. Um, so that's very straightforward when we get, you know, an, a, a known mutation in CFH. Then there's these five genes that follow it on the chromosome, CFHR1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Um, they are, you know, they arose from some kind of ancient gene duplication event. So they look very similar to CFH. It actually makes them a little bit challenging to sequence, uh, but we've managed to do it. Um, point, at this point in the literature, single nucleotide variants, you know, the kind of more classic mutations that we think about, uh, don't, aren't associated with AHUS yet, uh, with the exception of CFHR5, where there is some evidence for that. Um, however, there's a, there is a very uh, strong association with this large deletion that takes out CFHR1 and CFHR3. And so this deletion occurred um, sometime in, in the evolution of man, where it's you know, a very common deletion that many healthy people have, but it's certainly enriched in the atypical HUS population in its homozygous state. So if you are homozygous, if you're carrying this homozygous deletion of CFHR1 and 3, uh, that is very strongly associated with HUS, and especially with the development of anti-CFH auto uh, anti uh, antibody, um, and uh, I, you know, so that would be a positive viral test. If we see that, which we can, we will call that positive, and we would recommend that you then do follow up testing for the uh, autoantibody. Um, again, it's not like it's a different kind of positive because actually there are you know we actually do see it in healthy people occasionally, so it, it, it's a common enough deletion in the normal population that some people just have the homozygous deletion and are totally fine. So when we, when we find a, a deletion in the CFHR family of, of mutations, that increases our concern that this might be an antibody-mediated case of atypical HUS, vaguely or somewhat analogous to the way TTP is, and something that matters to the clinician because we would treat this with immunosuppression as well as perhaps a short course mechanism that to tide us over until we can get rid of these autoantibodies. But what if we find the deletion and we don't find antibodies when we look? Uh, yeah. Um, there seems to be some evidence that it's still uh, suspicious. Um, you know, being homozygous for the deletion, but antibody negative, that still seems to be an enriched population uh, within AHUS. So, um, but I guess more of an active area of, of inquiry right now. Yeah, exactly. That's what I tell my patients, I tell physicians the same thing when we discuss their patients, that the, our testing for the antibodies is still not perfect. And we often have people who behave as though they have an antibody, but our antibody testing itself comes back negative. And then as you note, um, the homozygous deletions are, are very much associated with what with AHUS, it appears, but it's also a fairly common finding, and whether it by itself is enough to be considered causative remains a bit up, up in the air. Just to take that one step further, what about heterozygous deletions in CFHR family? Um, yeah, those might also be enriched in the population, but uh, you know, I think it's going to be hard to make maybe a... I don't know how much that can change your clinical decision, because it is quite common... Uh, in the norm, like we see that all the time, the heterozygous deletion. Uh, and in some, you know, I think there's 
you know, in Nigeria, perhaps, you know, that allele frequency is as high as 33%. So you are just going to see that a lot. So, you know, even if it is enriched, you know, it's hard to maybe have that push you one way or the other. Note to add about the databases, these population databases with allele frequencies. So these have gotten better. So originally, they used to be very broad. It was just, here's 2,000 people we sequenced, and here's the frequencies that we saw variants. But we know that people are very um, heterogeneous, and uh, the variants will reflect that. Um, so uh, older papers may have seen a variant and looked in those databases and found, oh, this is a, a rare variant. But now that we have newer data, um, uh, they can now see, well, this variant is actually rare in European populations, but very common in African populations. And so, you know, we, we, we then have this issue of like, what do we, how do we report this? And so um, the way we personally think about it is this variant is probably then benign because this is a, a, rare, a very rare disease and it's not known to target certain populations over others. So we don't really think you know, so basically, we think if the variant is common in a population, that's probably sufficient to say it's benign. Now, it's possible for that to not be true. You certainly could have a variant that is truly pathogenic in one population, but not in another due to complex genetics, you know, other variants elsewhere in the genome that modify it. Um, so that's certainly possible, but I think that's less likely until we see evidence of it. Uh, so right now, we, we do report variants as long as they're rare in sort of the the aggregate database, but we will mention if it's common in one of the subpopulation databases, um, and that is should be thought of as more on the benign side of the equivocal. Um, and again, these things, these population databases right now, they're still they're getting better, but they're still kind of coarse. But they're gonna those are gonna improve definitely with time. There's a lot of interest in that in that area. Great. So, Jamie, one of the other things that often comes up in, in our reports and has been reported in the literature, too, is that many patients who have atypical HUS have m multiple mutations that, uh, that affect various components of the, of the complement cascade. Do um, you want to talk a bit about the presence of multiple mutations or even the accrual of multiple um, polymorphisms or changes in the genome, none of which by themselves would make you think about it, but do you... Be, be, begin to change your feeling about um, this equivocal as you accrue more and more mutations. Right. There's definitely strong evidence in the literature that having that some patients will have multiple rare variants that you know seem to contribute and those patients fare worse. Um, you know, so we think that's a real a real finding. Um, and you know that probably makes sense if this disease is partially penetrant. So if you have several partially penetrant alleles, it probably makes it just that much more likely that you will um, develop full-blown AHUS. Um, so we do see that. Um, and right, so if you, ha if you have a bunch, if you have a patient who has a bunch of equivocal variants, you know, all, all one patient, that is, a, that is reason to think of it as being, uh, on the whole, much more suspicious. One other thing to talk about are these polymorphic, these risk polymorphisms. So these will show up in many of the reports because they're very common in the normal population. So there's a set of three variants in CFH um, that often travel together, but sometimes not perfectly. Um, they're very common in the normal population, but they're definitely enriched in the AHUS population. And this is also true for a set of five polymorphisms in CD46, or also called MCP. So same thing, these five variants tend to travel together, 
um, and uh, very common in normal people, but definitely over-enriched in the AHUS population. So you'll often see these on your reports. Uh, again, since they're so common in the normal population, you can't really do much of this information. It's really going to fall in that equivocal area. It's kind of interesting to see them, and we, you know, we see them all the time, uh, but I, I don't think it really helps with a diagnosis at this point. Great, thanks. You know, forget somebody who has an equivocal mutation that's kind of leaning towards yeah. positive, and then they have four or five of these other polymorphisms. Or the homozygous say, for them. Yeah. yeah you know, it's the, there's burden here. Each of these probably slightly increases your risk. None of them are enough to have increased it enough for me to think of it as a causative mutation, but it is, it does increase your risk of, of being affected. An analogy I often make is to, to is looking back at Joe Dell's work with the bone marrow transplant related TMAs. These are patients who go through an experience of bone marrow transplant, um, which does not pre-select for patients who are likely to get atypical HUS, but it does drive the complement cascade at certain stages of the transplant in a big way. So even a small defect in their ability to regulate complement, which would never have mattered in the general population, matters under this kind of stress. And I think it's still something we're starting to get a handle on, but these people with these with multiple mutations do seem to be predisposed to developing a TMA-like disease under that stress, which then goes away once that stressor is gone, but they may require therapy for a short period of time. We see something we think very similar in, the, in renal transplant patients. We're getting renal transplants not for HUS-related renal disease, but for some other clearly defined cause of, of renal failure. But now under the stress of the renal transplant, they're getting a TMA post-transplant Again, because they had often because they have seemingly multiple, somewhat uh, complement dysregulating uh, mutations. So they have, a, if you will, an allele burden. They have more of these of these defects. Great. So I think the the punchline then is when you order uh, gene sequencing, you want to remember from the get go, um, or you want to think about why you're ordering this. Um, if you're ordering it to prognosticate, then only positive genes that are of known prognostic value or the absence of any mutation, which also appears to have some prognostic value mattered. If you're ordering it because you wanted to move forward with a, a renal transplant, um, then again, finding a mutation that has some clinical prognostic significance or which can be tested for in family members is useful. Getting a negative is just simply not helpful in that setting and the equivocals don't really help you very much. Um, although they might inform your your choice of donors, depending on, on the feeling of the transplanter to some extent. I think we don't have good data on that. When you're using it because you're trying to sort out a confusing case of AHUS, a positive is helpful and everything else is less helpful. And the equivocals we try to discuss in the reports and your physicians are always welcome to give us a call. We'll talk about it more in detail over the phone as we try to stratify the equivocal uh, diagnoses, and we can maybe tell you if this is an equivocal that is leaning towards being a positive or might even become a positive as more data accrues in the in the very near future. And much of the time, an equivocal just simply ends up being unhelpful. Repeating the testing isn't going to change anything at this point. Down the road, we may change our interpretation of the data, and you may want to give us a call back to see if we're thinking differently about the data, but we aren't going to think any differently about the sequencing. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michian Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. 
Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to discuss, please send an email to blood, sweat, and smears at mechiondiagnostics.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at mechiondx. Be sure to subscribe, share, and join us next time for more coagulation information.